My name is Robert, uh, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And if you want to do me a favor and go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to jump up. There are Bibles uh, on tables behind the sections of chairs. You won't distract me. You won't distract anybody else. Uh, Grab one. We want you to have one. Uh, We're going to be in it a lot this morning. Uh, And this morning, when you go to the book of Philippians, I want to remind you that we are in uh, what we're calling our Partner to Remember project uh, from the January 1st through Easter Sunday, a number of you, I mean a surprising number of you, uh, have committed together to memorize the book of Philippians between January 1st and Easter. That's why we, you've heard people reciting Philippians this morning. And, and so this morning I'm going to take the text we read as our, as our call and response and I'm going to connect it to where we are in the book of Acts. And so that's why we're in Philippians. So if you'll open to Philippians chapter 1, uh, as you're doing that, I want to read something to you uh, that I came across in a book that I read this week about God's Word um, to encourage us in what we're about to do, what many of us are doing in memorizing the Word, and what you just heard about in our communities. Listen to this. Um, God's Word, working through God's Spirit, is God's primary instrument for growing God's church. And when the author says this, he's talking about depth, he's talking about maturity, he's talking about health, he's not talking about width numerics and statistics. He's talking about deep growth. In fact, God's word is the most powerful force in the universe. God created the universe through his word. He's recreating the universe through his word, and he sustains all things by his word. The author went on to say, if you took away the building, if you took away the address, if you took away the city and you put God's people down in a field, what would be absolutely necessary for life and growth? He went on to say this, we would need God's word working through God's spirit. Somebody has to pick up a Bible and read it, and someone has to explain it so that the people will understand it. And when this happens, the spirit begins to work upon people's hearts, causing them to believe the words they hear and give a proper weight to them. The people then repeat these words in their songs and in their prayers together, and they begin to discover most remarkably that they can speak to God as guided by his very own words. And so what we do on Sunday morning, just to give you a perspective and a picture of all the things you've heard about and and what we're doing and why we're here, this is what we're praying for when we gather together here on Sunday morning. We believe that God's word, empowered by God's spirit, working through God's people, is God's chief means of cultivating the soul to reflect the character of his son. And when we gather together and we read God's word and someone explains God's word, you can think about it if you want to go agricultural because I like cultivating, I like that word. You can think about it like the broad scale work of, of tilling a field. You know, before you got to plant that garden, you just got to break the ground up. You just have to go out there and do the work of tilling the field, breaking up the dirt, pulling it up, putting the seed down, and just getting it wet. Really indiscriminate work. That's what's happening when we gather together on Sunday morning. This is the big work of tilling our souls, of cultivating our souls, of breaking the ground, of watering our hearts, of planting seed. And the writer, Jonathan Lehman, he went on to say this. Now, not only do they remarkably understand that they can speak to God as guided by his words, now God's people also repeat his words to one another throughout the week. They help each other to discern his will for their lives. Then their lives begin to be shaped by God's words so that they begin to live differently at home and at work. They then discover that these very words are life-giving, hope-giving, and love-producing so that they can run 
and they can call others who have not yet heard these words to hear them. Because words produce actions, and then those actions and those words work together to give witness to the power of God to salvation, a salvation that begins now and stretches into eternity. And so what he's just saying is, as God's word goes forward, empowered by his spirit, as it's opened up and read and explained, you then have the capacity to get together throughout the week as those words begin to work their way into your heart and into your soul. We begin to gather throughout the week, just like you heard an example of five minutes ago. We get together, and when we're together, God's word being spoken by God's people to one another, encouraging one another, examining one another's hearts and motivations, and helping one another see what difference that word makes into how we live our lives begins to shape the way we understand who we are and change the way we live in the very moment that we find ourselves in, not only in our homes, but in the places that we work. That's what happens when our communities get get together. This is like once the ground is tilled up and and the dirt's there and the seed's in, now you've got to get some tools out and begin to do the specific work of picking up those weeds and picking up those sticks and picking up those rocks that were produced, that were were made known through the, the broad tilling of the ground. Now there's a little more intensive work that you can do. You can see exactly what needs to be added to the ground. You can see exactly what nutrients are missing. You can see exactly what rocks and sticks are in the way. This is what's happening when we get together in our communities. The further cultivation of the soul to reflect the character of Christ is done by God's people as they speak God's words empowered by his spirit to one another. And then as we take that time, and for many of us, and I would encourage all of you to do this, as we gather together even apart from that community or within that community with with just two or three other people, two or three other people, just a smaller group of men together and women together, speaking God's word together, empowered by God's spirit. It's like actually getting down on your hands and knees with that garden. It's actually beginning to notice what things are actually affecting this plant. What things are actually affecting this plant, causing it to either produce the harvest that we see, or do we need to do to this plant to get it to produce the harvest that we see? What infections, what parasites, what bugs, what nastiness is getting on this plant so that we can get in and take care of it so that we can see health come and fruit produce. That's what's happening when we get together in our smaller group. It's like getting down and dirty and getting your hands dirty in the business of seeing the soul cultivated to reflect God's character. See, we, we agree with the writer, and really that's just agreeing with Scripture that God's Word working through God's Spirit in the mouths of God's people is God's chief means of cultivating gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people. His chief means of cultivating the soul of people to reflect the character of Christ. And that's really what we do. That's what we're anticipating and praying for to happen here. Just broad work of tilling of the soul. That's what we pray for and anticipate to happen in our communities, in our 3D groups, in our smaller groups. The continued work of cultivating the soul to reflect the character of Christ. We're really just that simple. We're really just that simple. And so this morning, I want you to pray with me. I want to pray this morning that God's word, empowered by God's spirit, going out from the mouth of one of God's people, will do the work that he's promised that it will do in the cultivation of our soul this morning to take us a step further to reflect the character of his son. So let's take a second to pray before we get into this. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promise that your word does not return back to you void and that your word is empowered by your very spirit that raised your son Jesus from the dead. And so we ask this morning that you would do what only you can do in our time together and you would use your word to transform hearts and minds and souls and thoughts and intentions and motivations this morning. 
that you may be honored, that you may be glorified, that your name uh, may be exalted, not only in this place, in my mouth and in our words, but as we leave here through the lives that we live. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Chris already read our text for us this morning in the call and response, and we'll read it again in a second. Uh, But he brought up to us that the general idea and the general theme of the text, and, and that's suffering. And if we're honest, I'll ask you this in a question. Is there a more universal experience amongst humans? Is there a more universal experience amongst all mankind, one that's common to all men at all times and all places? Is there a more common universal experience in suffering? And suffering and hardship or, or disappointment or pain or, or struggle. Suffering is, is one of the most predictable realities in life. It's one of the most predictable realities of life in a fallen world and it's a many-layered thing. And if the reality of suffering and the predictability of suffering sometimes isn't frustrating enough, it's even more frustrating to realize that you and I, all of us as sinners, not only suffer, but because of the sin that still resides in our heart and the sin that still tempts us and, (laughs) and causes us to do things we would otherwise wish we wouldn't, you and I are all responsible for causing suffering and pain and difficulty, and struggle, and hardship in the lives of other people. And so this morning, we're going to look at a text in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to connect it back to where we've been in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at a very specific account of suffering in Scripture. We're not going to have time to take a full run through the Bible and try to get a full picture of the understanding of suffering in Scripture. We're going to look at a very specific instance, a very specific account of suffering in scripture in the life of the man Saul of Tarsus who became the apostle Paul. And as we do that, we're going to ask, what is Paul teaching this church in Philippi? And consequently, what is he teaching you and I right here, right now? And we want to do that in hope that, and here's my prayer, here's my hope, here's, here's at the end, if God would be gracious enough to do this in the time that we've got together. My prayer is that God will We'll use this text to help shape the way that we think, the way that we approach, and the way that we understand the difficulty and the suffering that we're dealing with right now and the difficulty and the suffering that is inevitably going to come into our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully they're already open to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. If so, you've beaten me there. I gave you all that time to get there, and then I didn't go and get there. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to read through verse 18. Uh, And then we're going to talk a lot. Paul says, I want you to know something, brothers. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed do preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What's happening here is the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, who we've been looking at in the book of Acts, now the Apostle Paul, is taking a specific, personal instance of 
hardship and suffering and using it as a way to encourage, a way to teach, and a way to give testimony to this church in Philippi. And that's what I want to try to accomplish this morning. He's encouraging this church, he's teaching this church, and he's testifying to this church that though it may look one particular way, God is using the hardship and the suffering to advance the gospel not only through him, but in him. God uses the difficulty and hardships in our life to advance the gospel, not only through us, but in us as well. A quote that I have held on to for almost seven, eight years now, from the first time I heard it, when we were going through some very difficult things, went like this, God will take you where you do not want to go to produce in you and through you what you would never do on your own. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching, encouraging, and testifying to this morning. But before we can get into the text, I just want to make some common statements and maybe try to, to level the field because when we talk about suffering, we have to admit that when it comes to the understanding of suffering in the evangelical church today and the American church today, there is some really messed up teaching about suffering. I went through a local Christian bookstore this week in an effort to just see what the common teaching would be on suffering so that I didn't just make something up from my own bias. I was going to bring something in and show you. I could not bring myself to actually spend the money on it because I didn't want to give any money to what was being taught. And I don't have time to go into all the particular things that are being taught in the evangelical church today about suffering. We would take a whole sermon to talk about the realities of those who teach that suffering in the life of a believer is God's judgment upon your sin present. We don't have time to go into scripture to talk about how evil and distorted that understanding is. Or, or the other common one that, that's often found in the church where, where though it, it might not be God's direct judgment on your sin because you've understood that your sin has been punished as a believer once and for all in Christ, but your suffering is a way for you to make penance before God. That you, you suffer and you endure suffering with gritted teeth and, and clenched fists because you know if you suffer enough, then, then God might accept your suffering as a payback. And far from understanding the biblical work of Jesus on the cross, we implicitly take on some karmic understanding of sin and suffering and forgiveness or some penance understanding of sin and suffering and forgiveness that's antithetical to the teaching of the Bible, but the one that is so common You can't turn on a radio, you can't turn on a television, you can't walk into a bookstore without being assaulted by the idea that God's people, forgiven by God's Son through his death and sacrifice and resurrection, should not endure any suffering or hardship in their life on this earth. If there is a common, heretical distortion of the gospel that has taken over the American church when it comes to this idea of hardship and suffering, it's this one. And it will destroy your soul. It will undermine and undercut any legitimate sense of hope and assurance that you have in the person and work of Jesus. It it basically says if you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, then you should not suffer any difficulty or hardship in this life. You just have to trust Jesus and love Jesus enough. And when you do, you won't suffer. And if you suffer, then, then you're in some type of sin for not believing in Jesus enough, for not loving Jesus enough, for not having enough faith in Jesus. Never mind the testimony of Scripture, which I wish we had time to start from the beginning and walk all the way through. 
Somehow or another, this American doctrine of, of suffering is not a doctrine that's sufficient for the Apostle Paul. It's not sufficient for the rest of the disciples or the rest of the apostles who suffered greatly, who were crucified upside down, who were beheaded, who were boiled, and it's not good enough for Jesus Christ himself who knew suffering in a way that none of us could know. For some reason, he was in sin. It doesn't even make sense. But yet the American church has bought it hook, line, and sinker. So I, I wish we had time to go through all these, but we don't. So let me just get us on a level playing field. Matthew chapter 7. I just want to read you something. I, you, you can go there if you want. It's going to be a familiar passage, but I just, I just want to level the field. We're not going to get really, really particular here. We're just going to try to get in the same ballpark. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus is telling a story, and he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell. And great was the fall of it. So normally you hear this parable, we, we teach this parable, and the understanding is that if your feet are firmly planted in Jesus, you'll be rooted and grounded. Nothing will be able to overtake you. And, and praise God that that's the truth. And that is the truth. But there's a view from 50,000 feet on this parable that tends to get forgotten when we talk about suffering. And that's that the rain is going to come on everybody. You realize the guy who had his feet in his house built on the rock and the guy who had his house built on the sand both suffered the torrential flood and rain that came. Everybody is going to face difficulty in life in this fallen world. It's still going to fall. The, the floods are still going to rise. Suffering is not prejudiced based on your faith, based on your religion, based on your upbringing, based on your zip code, no matter what, it, nothing. Suffering is not prejudiced. Everybody will face suffering. It does not pick and choose according to our beliefs. We've got your Bibles. Flip over to Acts chapter 9. Let me just show you this in the life of our buddy, the Apostle Paul. I wish we had time to pick apart this lie this deception that none of us should suffer because if it wasn't true of Jesus, he promised that it wouldn't be true of us. Acts chapter 9. Let's just see how this works itself out in the life of our buddy Paul, Saul of Tarsus. We've been going through Acts chapter 9, looking at God's work in his life and his conversion. And I want to back back up to chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, because I want you to see something here that will help set a stage for us as we keep going forward. The Lord said to him, talking to Saul, who he had, or he was talking to Ananias, sorry, um, who he had chosen to go and, and lay hands on Saul and restore his sight. He says, go for, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And there's a beautiful picture there. He says, look, from before the beginning of time, the foundations of the earth, before anything that is ever was, I chose this man, Saul, who has been terrorizing my church to be my instrument, to be my tool. Go back to the cultivation image. He's saying, I've chosen this man to carry a heavy load. Think wheelbarrow, think hand truck, think cart to move weight. I've chosen him to be my instrument, to be my tool, to carry my name. Is there a 
heavier weight in all of eternity to carry. And Jesus said, before the foundation of the earth, I chose this man and I'm going to use this man. He is going to carry the weight of my name, my character, my reputation, my work, my gospel before all people. And I'm going to have my hands on this instrument. And I'm going to use him to carry my good news before the children of Israel and kings and the Gentiles. And what's said of him is true of us as well, but he goes on. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name in carrying my good news before all people of the earth. It's going to be weighty. It's going to be painful. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be suffering. In the life of Saul of Tarsus, it's not going to be delayed. If we just keep reading, which in Acts chapter 9, we don't have time to read verse by verse to go through it, but what happens is as he gets his sight back, and his life has been radically transformed, Luke records that he begins immediately to teach in the synagogues in Damascus. The very places where he went to persecute believers, he's now going into trying to convert people to this message of the gospel. And he begins to teach in the synagogues. And when the, the Jews finally realize what he's doing and how you know, weird this is that he came to get rid of these things and now he's coming to these things. And as he begins to teach the message, the very message that got Stephen stoned, the very message that got him knocked off his horse and transformed, as he begins teaching this message in the synagogues, now, now the Jews get really mad and they want to kill him. So the believers have to let him down out of town in a basket over a wall. And time he makes his way to Jerusalem to meet the rest of the disciples. I wish we could take time to really just tease out what that must have been like. What that must have been like for the disciples in Jerusalem, for this man to come back proclaiming to have been transformed by the gospel and now been told by God himself that he is going to be God's man to the Gentiles with the gospel. I mean, they had to think this was like the, this big Trojan horse coming back to the people. He's lying. I mean, you, I wish we could just tease that out. But he comes back into Jerusalem and they don't accept him right away. He gets rejected by the disciples at first, but God uses this man Barnabas, who we'll talk more about in in Acts, to pave the way for him between the disciples, and the disciples finally accept him, and he begins to teach there in Jerusalem, and again, people get really ticked off at him as he proclaims the gospel. And in the short period of time since his conversion and his subsequent ministry of the gospel, a second people group is trying to kill the apostle Paul. And so the disciples in Jerusalem get him out of Jerusalem. They get him back to Tarsus. And from there, his ministry is marked not only by conversion, not only by success, not only by all the things that we know of Paul, but of extreme and excruciating hardship and suffering. In 2 Corinthians, we don't have time to get into it, but between this moment here and where we are in Philippi, Paul will recount to the church what he's been through already. Five times beaten within a a whip of his life shipwrecked, left destitute, hungry, homeless, despairing even of life itself. And then ultimately, for the first of two times, he finds himself in prison in Rome, which is where he writes this letter to the Philippian church from. And so here's the thing. Contrary to what popular American evangelical Christianity wants to tell you, you are going to suffer. You are going to have difficulty and hardship and pain in your life on this earth as a follower of Christ. You are going to suffer. The question is not, will I suffer? The Bible is unbelievably, beautifully detailed 
about the fact that suffering is a reality in our life on this earth. It's not, will I suffer? The question that we have to deal with and the question that the Apostle Paul is encouraging us in this morning when we move on into Philippians is, are we going to suffer well? Are we going to see our suffering purposefully or are we going to see our suffering in a pointless way? Are we going to see our suffering purposefully in that God is purposefully working his gospel in us and through us in the midst of the difficulty that we face? It's an issue of perspective. And the church in this country has absolutely cut the foundation out from under a gospel understanding of suffering. The one thing that is universal to all people. You will suffer and you will die. Will you do it with a hope that comes from the gospel? Or will you drown in your own sense of pointlessness in it? You're going to suffer. That's not the question. The question is will you do it in a way that you understand the gospel is advancing in you in the midst of it and advancing through you in the midst of it, whether you see it right then or not. That's the issue. Or for you, will your suffering become an occasion for sin? An occasion for bitterness, anger at other people, towards God? Will God become the one who goes on trial in the midst of it for you? Will God be the one who's in need of repentance in your eyes? Will it be purposeful or will it be occasion, an occasion for sin? See, suffering, unlike anything else that we experience in our lives, has a way of purging the truth out from under our hearts. It has a way of purging the motivations, the desires, the intentions, the wants, the passions. It has a way of getting underneath all the superficial things that that we can put on top of our heart and and, and the veneer that we can put out in front of us. Suffering and difficulty has a way of squeezing our heart and our soul and purging out from us what's really going on, what's really at root, what's, what's really the fundamental want and passion and desire in our heart. See, when we suffer, when we face hardships, when there's difficulty, you begin to see what we really love, what we really fear, what we really doubt, what we really trust. And with the gospel understanding, with, the, with what the Apostle Paul is showing us here in Philippians, one of the hardest things, which is why we're going to hit it whether we run out of time or not, is that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, we have to see that there's a grace in it. We have to see that there's actually a gift Flip back over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 really just sets us up for Philippians chapter 2. That's really what's going on there. And Philippians chapter 1 sets us up for Philippians chapter 2, which helps us understand how we live in a purposeful way in the midst of suffering. I want you to see how the Apostle Paul ends this first chapter of Philippians. And you're going to hear someone recite it in just a little while. But here's what he says when he talks about his suffering, his hardship, and what he's endured. He goes on after what we read to say in verse 29. For it's been granted to you. Now, granted right there means it's been given to you in kindness for free. Something's been given to you in kindness for free. That's what being, this word being, it's been granted to you actually means. So, by God, it's been given to you for free out of God's kindness that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. We get that. We love that. 
God in his kindness has given us the faith necessary to believe in the person and work of his son Jesus Christ that we would be transformed, that we would be renewed, that we would experience his redemption. We love that. We, we get that. We cherish that. We, we preach that, don't we? We love that. God's grace gave it to us in kindness. Nothing of our own that we could do to earn it, pay for it, or merit it. That's what he's saying right here. But he goes on. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Here's the thing. Let me remind you one more time in case you missed it in the last 15 minutes when I've been talking. You were going to suffer. You were going to suffer. But there's a gift with this suffering. And not only is there a gift in this suffering, and we'll see it teased out in the verses in chapter one, but the suffering itself is a gift. It's a grace. And we've got to see that. Now, I want you to see how the Apostle Paul says it one time. You don't have to turn there. Second Corinthians told you he kind of outlined all of his suffering, all of his pain, all of his hardship. This is what he says about one particular instance of his suffering that he's endured. And I do this one in purpose because of where the pain comes from. I just want you to get this. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Here's what he's going to say. Well, I'll start in, let's say, I'll start in verse, uh, where do I want to start? Let's start in verse 6. Here's what he's saying to the church. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. He's got lots to boast about. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, you should just put that in your pipe and smoke that one for a week. I mean, we could stop there. I mean, you just deal with that, but that's not the point of what we're talking about. But I wanted you to hear that. So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, who would do that to you, Paul? To keep you from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's God's way of saying no. Three times I pleaded, take this thing from me. We don't know what that thing is. We don't know the direct nature of the suffering and the difficulty and the pain that it caused the Apostle Paul, but we know it was given to him by the Lord, and we know it was given to him from the Lord, and the Lord would not take it away from him because God knows his heart. Just as he knows your heart and just as he knows my heart. And he knows how prone our hearts are to wander from a true and sincere satisfaction in who he is and what he's done. And this is what he says to Paul. I'm going to give this to you because I know you. I take no delight in your pain. I don't delight in seeing you suffer. What I delight in is in the midst of your suffering. You cling to me. You trust me. Not that I will relieve you of your pain but you trust me and who I am in the midst of your pain. No, I'm not going to take it away from you. It wouldn't be good for you for me to take it away from you. I know your heart, just as he knows our hearts. And in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our struggle, just like the Apostle Paul, if we can get to the place where we can say, what I want, what I desire, 
what I hold on to, what I cling to, is you, is Jesus, is who you are for me, what you have done. I don't want you to let me get everything I want in my life. I don't want you to let me pursue my will 24-7. I don't want to live a life free of pain and of suffering and of difficulty if I don't get you. The worst thing you could ever do, God, is to let me get what I want and not get you. And to keep Paul and to keep us from that very thing. We have pain. We have difficulty. We have the very uncomfortable grace of suffering. To flip back over to Philippians, we're going to get back into it. Because one of the things that I want us to see in the last few minutes is that this uncomfortable grace of pain, this uncomfortable grace of suffering, this kindness that's been granted to us along with our faith in the man Jesus Christ himself, but this kindness that's been granted to us to suffer, not pointlessly, but purposefully for his name's sake, brings something to us that's crucial, not only as we face the text, but as we face our life and as we face the suffering that we deal with, and that's a proper perspective. Look at verse 12 in Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Oh, excuse me. I want you to know, brothers. I was reading verse 3. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What was Paul's perspective on his particular and personal suffering and pain and hardship? I mean, what was Paul's overall global perspective on what he was dealing with right then, right there, in a Roman prison, chained up to a Roman guard? I mean, what was his perspective? See, he saw his very present circumstances, his very immediate suffering, his very immediate hardship for what it really was. An opportunity for God to not only advance the gospel in him, which we'll hear in a few minutes, but through him. He saw his circumstances for what they really were. Because see, as far, as far as Paul is concerned, as far as the apostle Paul is really concerned with what's going on in his life right there in that moment, his circumstances weren't the big picture. His sitting in that Roman prison, having been beaten, having been shipwrecked, having been left hungry, having been left stranded, having been despairing of life in and of itself, and now chained to a Roman guard was not the big picture. The big picture was the advancement of God's precious gospel in him and through him to those who have not heard and have not believed on the man Jesus. The the gospel and the purpose of God and the redemptive story of redeeming all of creation from the wreckage and the breakage of sin was the big picture that Paul's little picture of his life that this present circumstance and suffering found its home in. Paul saw his life and his suffering in God's big picture of redemption and restoration, not the other way around. You see, we weren't called to just suffer. Some of you have tuned your ears out. He said, I'm going to suffer. Eh, it's not purposeless. Don't tune me out. Paul understood that his suffering and his circumstances were, they weren't arbitrary and they weren't pointless. They were a part of God's bigger plan and God's bigger purpose and God's bigger picture of the advancement of the gospel for his name's sake. His suffering was only part of it. 
And in understanding that his suffering was only part of God's big picture, it did not diminish the reality in his heart. And scripture bears this out, that God isn't concerned about those circumstances and those hardships and those moments of suffering. But they're just not the center of things. It's just not the center. And so when things go bad for the Apostle Paul, and they go bad for him all the time, the more we read in Acts as we keep going, it's going to go bad for Paul almost every week when we preach, when we get to Paul's missionary journeys. And when things go bad for the Apostle Paul, he doesn't immediately look at what's going on and declare a crisis. What's happening to Paul? Whatever it is that's going on in his life that's painful or hard, it doesn't become the issue of the day. It doesn't become the focus of the day. It doesn't become the message of the day. It doesn't become what you call everybody else to focus on and prioritize their time around and pay attention to. He understood that his pain found its appropriate place in God's bigger picture of redemption and the forward advancement of the gospel, not only through him, but in him right in the midst of it. The Apostle Paul knew and actually believed that God was working together all things for those who love him according to his goodwill and his good pleasure for the sake of advancing his gospel and building his kingdom. The problem is, if it's not already obvious in the way I said all that, is that when we suffer and we face difficulties and we face hardships, we tend to place our circumstances and our suffering and our pain in the center of things. The world begins to revolve around what I'm going through. The way that I view people and the way that I view my life and the way that I view my relationships with others and with God and the way that I see everything, it becomes like rose-colored glasses, though not so rosy, more like black. And it begins to color the way I see everything. And we tend to place our circumstances and our suffering in the middle of, of everything when what's in the middle of everything is God's purposes in advancing the gospel. That's what's at the middle of the story. The exaltation of his son Jesus and his life in our place and his sacrificial death on the cross in our place and for our sin and our circumstances, be they good or be they bad, are just a part of God's bigger picture of redemption and restoration. You see, the Apostle Paul, he had this, had this unbelievable view of his life as it played itself out in God's purposes. And he actually believed the things that we talk about all the time, the things that we weave into our, even our, our communities. He actually believed that his identity had been changed, had been transformed, and that he now was a disciple of Jesus, that he now was a son of God, and that God had now called him as his son and as a disciple to be an ambassador to others and, and to the nations. And he knew that his identity was in Jesus, and it was defined by God, and it wasn't subject to his circumstances, and it wasn't subject to his suffering, and it wasn't subject to his difficulties. He knew that the advancement of the gospel and the spreading of the gospel and the declaration of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, all of that was what was primary and his circumstances fit into that picture because he understood his identity had been transformed and now he was a saint. He was a disciple of Jesus. And contrary to what the church in this country wants to tell you, if suffering was a part of the ministry of Jesus, it will be a part of our ministry as his followers, as evidenced in the life of the Apostle Paul. So Paul's circumstances and suffering are reframed 
And now he sees his life, not only the good but the bad, through the lens of God's bigger picture, of God's plan to spread the gospel. So let me encourage you firsthand here, and then we're going to keep going, and it's going to pick up the pace. Don't fool yourself. And you know what? Let me say it this way. Don't let your suffering or your difficulty or your hardships fool you into thinking that your life is all about yourself. Lots of things fool us into thinking that, but none so cleverly as our suffering. Don't let your suffering fool you, lie to you, deceive you, tempt you into thinking that your life is all about yourself. The other thing the Apostle Paul is, is teaching this church and then testifying to this church in this passage is the reach, the circumference, the, the expanse of your suffering. Not only is God working his gospel and advancing his gospel in you, but he's advancing his gospel through you. See, Paul's suffering in this passage has become a communal activity. It's become, it's involved other people now. His private, personal suffering in this particular instance now has a greater reach. He's in prison by himself, but he's not alone. And what he wants this church to see and consequently us to see is that our suffering has a greater reach. And when you think that you're suffering at all about yourself, you fail to see that God puts you in places and works through you in particular times so that his gospel can not only advance in you, but can advance through you. See, in your suffering, if you make it all about you, if you make your life all about you and you want everybody to pay attention to you and you want them to make everything about you in the midst of what you're going through, you miss that you're in a very specific situation where God has put you and has brought people into your life. He has put you in this and he has brought you to this place and he has brought people into your life and he has given you an opportunity to speak about his son, Jesus, and to reflect a trust in his son, Jesus, in such a way that those who do not know his son, Jesus, have not placed faith on his son, Jesus, can see your satisfaction in his son, Jesus, being reflected through the way you think and respond to the suffering that you're facing in your life. And not only that those who don't know Jesus can see Jesus in your satisfaction in him through the way that you understand what you're going through and respond to what you're going through, but those who do know Jesus, the church, those who are closest to you, can see the way you trust Jesus and are satisfied in Jesus and the perspective you have in your difficulty because of your faith in Jesus and their faith in Jesus can be strengthened and transformed and emboldened. That's what he says here in Philippians chapter 1. You see, there's no greater opportunity for the, go- the world to see the gospel advanced and really through how you respond to the difficulty that you face in your life because the universal reality that everybody can relate to is pain and suffering and difficulty and the many faces that it takes on. So I'm going to go through this last bit of text and I'm going to ask you some questions as we go. Will you face your difficulty? Will you face your suffering in a way that non-Christians will see Jesus as a result of the way that you respond to it? Look at what he says in verse 13. So he says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So his perspective is one of the bigger picture. Don't focus here. It's not about me in prison. It's about what God is doing, not only in me, but through me. And here's what he says. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
So Paul was in a prison in Rome. Don't think downtown Richmond. He was in a prison. Actually, he was in a prison in Nero's house, in Nero's empire, where Nero was located in Rome. So he actually had the royal guard imprisoning him. But Paul was most likely in a particular room or in a particular area, and all day long he was chained to a guard. He wasn't behind uh, bars. He wasn't in a room that was walled off. He was chained to a Roman guard. So who do you think heard the gospel? I mean, history says they, those guards usually had shifts every four to seven hours. So every four to seven hours, a new praetorian guard, a new royal guard was chained to the Apostle Paul. And he's trying to remind this church, look, don't, don't focus here. I, I'm not focusing here. Is it bad? Yes. Is this where I would want to be? No. But look, where I'm going through and where I am has served to advance the gospel so that the whole imperial guard knows that I'm in chains, not because I did something wrong, but for Jesus. Paul would tell one person about Jesus who would leave, another would come to him and be chained to him, he'd tell him about Jesus, and at some point through his entire imprisonment here, all some 5,000 royal guardsmen had heard the message of the gospel as they would leave and tell their friends what this man that they had been chained to had been telling them. Will you see your suffering and your difficulty in such a way that causes you to respond to it in a way that those who don't know Jesus could see Jesus and your satisfaction in him through the way that you respond to the suffering you're facing? Will you suffer in a way that non-Christians will see Jesus as a result? And not only that, verse 14, and most of the brothers... Now he's talking about the rest of the church. Now most of the brothers, they having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, so I wish I could say with Paul that you became confident because of my preaching, because of what I did or what I said, no. They become confident because of my imprisonment and much more bold now to speak the word without fear. So will you see your suffering in such a way and respond to it in such a way that the brothers and sisters, that the church, that those who along with you have placed their faith on the man Jesus Christ will see you in the midst of your suffering. See the way you view your suffering and more importantly, see the way you respond to your suffering in such a way that it strengthens their faith in Jesus, and not only strengthens their faith in Jesus, but emboldens them to not only speak the word, but to face their own difficulty and their own suffering in a different way. Your suffering is not pointless. It's purposeful. It's for the name and sake of Jesus Christ, not that you will be made much of, which is what we do when we suffer. We try to make it about us. Don't we, don't we want everybody to pay attention to us? Don't we want everybody to bend their will and build, bend their desires and their schedules towards us? Feel bad for me, focus on me, help me, love me, comfort me. Legitimate emotions, but they're not the point. Do we or will we, by God's grace, see our difficulty in life and not dismiss the pain, not dismiss the reality, not dismiss the circumstance, but face it and understand it and respond to it in such a way that the brothers and sisters in Christ can see the way that we see it and see the way that we live in it and be strengthened all the more to hope in Christ and all the more, like we read earlier, to speak his word empowered by his spirit 
in the midst of whatever it is they're facing. You see, your suffering has a reach. It's not all about you. One of the greatest temptations of the enemy is to get you to think it's all about you. He does it when things go well and you think it was all about you. And he does it when things go bad and he tries to get you to think it's all about you. But it's not. Your suffering has great reach and it impacts a lot of people. Will it be purposeful? Or will it be pointless? The guards, the church, they're getting the gospel because Paul understands his circumstances differently. And he responds to them differently. When we suffer, will we suffer well for the sake of Christ? Will we understand that it's, it's not all about me? See, God is advancing the gospel through Paul in the midst of his circumstances. And like I've already said, I want to show you as we come towards the end, he's not only using our difficulties and our suffering as a way to advance the gospel through us, but even what might even be equally important, I think, is he's advancing the gospel in us as well, in the midst of those circumstances. Before you charge out into your life and you see your suffering, your difficulty, and go, God is going to advance the gospel through my suffering, and who's being affected? Praise God you might do that. Don't miss the grace, the gift in his kindness that Paul said, that he has given to you in this suffering to advance the gospel in you, to change you in the midst of what you're going through, not just use it to change other people. He's changing you, and you need to see that. You need to believe that. You need to treasure that when you go through it because the reality of it is we're going to exalt somebody when we go through suffering. We're going to make it about somebody. It's going to be about Jesus or it's going to be about us. And God uses this suffering as a way to bring humility and perspective into our hearts and into our lives. I mean, look at how suffering and pain has has done this in the life of the Apostle Paul. You've got to kind of read it and know him to catch it here. Look at verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. The Apostle Paul is now in prison and other people are out there preaching the gospel, doing it in such a way as to make little of Paul, to actually rub salt into Paul's wounds of imprisonment. They're actually out there preaching the gospel, wanting to be Paul. They're out there preaching the gospel out of envy, out of a wrong motivation. And what does the Apostle Paul say? I mean, here is the man who would say, before I knew Christ, I could stand and look at all of you in clean conscience and say, I'm better than you. That's what he says. We'll get to it in Philippians later on as we have more partner to remember. He would stand in front of all of you and say with a clean conscience, I have excelled beyond all of you in maturation. And here he is in imprisonment and weakness and other people are out there preaching the gospel rubbing salt into his wounds from a wrong motivation, trying to make him look bad, trying to discredit him. And what does he say? It doesn't matter to me what they do and why they do it. It only matters to me that Jesus is being proclaimed. That Jesus is being proclaimed. Will your difficulty and suffering and 
hardship, will it work humility in you? Because you're going to make much out of someone. It'll either be yourself or it'll be Jesus. And last question, will you rejoice in the midst of your suffering? Will you rejoice in the midst of your suffering? What then, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. The scriptures are very, very clear that we are to rejoice in the Lord. David says it all the time in the book of Psalms. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Always rejoice in the Lord. David says it all the time. If we only had time to look into all the circumstances that David faced when he said those things. And he could say that because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of God's Spirit at work in your heart and in my life through a faith and a trust in God's Son, Jesus, and in God himself as we understand him through his word. Joy is a product of the Holy Spirit in our life. It is not an emotion that we have to muster up. Joy is not one of the many fickle emotions that tease our minds and tease our hearts. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so you have the capacity as the gospel works in your life and in your soul as you see your life as a part of God's bigger picture of restoration and redemption and you see God's purpose for your place in life and your circumstance in life in light of what he's doing not only through you but in you. You have the capacity because of God's work in you through his Holy Spirit in the midst of what you're facing to actually have joy, to actually rejoice. Not rejoice in the fact that you're suffering but rejoice in the fact that your life is a part of God's bigger plan and rejoice in the fact of your understanding and your trust and your faith in who God is in the midst of this time and that God is working his plans not only in you but through you and that in the midst of what you're facing, God is working a trust and a faith in him, in your heart and in your soul and through you, others may come to know his son and through you, others may be more strengthened in their faith in him and others may become more bold to speak their faith and their hope and their trust of him to other people you have capacity to rejoice not that you're suffering but that it's not purposeless you have a capacity to actually rejoice that you could come to know and to love and to trust Jesus more and that others would be compelled to come to know and to love and to trust Jesus more you can rejoice because in your difficulty and in your suffering God is advancing the gospel in you and through you the issue is We can't get to that place on our own. We can't muster ourselves and marshal all of our strength and marshal all of our wisdom to get that particular perspective in our mind and then charge out and face the fallenness of the world with that perspective. We we need help. So how do we actually get here? How, How do we actually get to this place? I'm going to introduce you to what you're going to memorize this week and it's going to help close us out and it's going to help us in the midst of our circumstances to get to this place. How do we deal with this? How do we respond to this? How do we get this perspective and this understanding in the midst of suffering? Philippians 2, verse 5. Here's what Paul says. Now, the context for chapter 2 is the suffering of chapter 1. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The problem is that we have a tendency to focus too much on ourselves in the midst of our suffering and difficulty and pain. The solution then is to squarely turn our focus, our attention, our passion on the person and work of Jesus. If we focus too much on ourselves in the midst of this time, the solution is to consider Jesus first, to consider him who left the comforts of eternity in the presence of God and came and suffered as a man, yet responded to that suffering, not in sin the way you and I do, but responded to that suffering in complete trust and obedience to his Father. And then willingly, in the midst of all that, laying his life down on a cross to die in our place for our sin. If we focus too much on ourselves in the midst of our circumstances and can't get ourselves out of that merry-go-round and that vicious cycle of destruction, the solution then is to focus first on him, the one who came in our place and endured what we endure. It's to reach for him, to study him, to meditate on him, to put our hearts on him, to think upon the way that he demonstrated perfect obedience and trust to the Father in the midst of the same circumstances and temptations and trials that we face. And as we do that, as we meditate on that, as we think on that, as we go there first, in the midst of that process of our soul being focused and cultivated, the Holy Spirit begins to push out that selfishness. It begins to birth in us a selflessness and a proper perspective on what it is that we're actually facing as we set our heart on Jesus, to him giving himself over for us. And we begin to see that there is no greater selflessness imaginable. The Holy Spirit begins to cultivate our soul, conform us into the image of his son, and set a proper perspective in our mind. And we learn the beautiful art Martin Lloyd-Jones would talk about of actually beginning to talk to ourselves and to quit listening to ourselves. We begin to set our minds and our focus on this man Jesus and we begin to tell ourselves that soul, cast your, cast your cares upon the Lord. Cast your cares upon the Lord for he'll sustain you. He'll never let the righteous be shaken. We begin to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. And we don't run to ourselves first. We don't run to our emotions first. We don't run to our minds first. We run to his word first. We run to him first. And we quit talking to ourselves and trying to appease our emotions and trying to reconcile our emotions. Instead, we take our emotions to task. And we put our emotions up on the witness stand and we begin to question them. We begin to put them on trial with God's word, the thing we talked about in the very beginning. We begin to talk to our fear and talk to our doubt and talk to our anger. We begin to put it in light of God's word and question it. Is that really true? Am I really left alone in the midst of this? Is that true? As a child of God, am I, am I really lonely in the midst of what I'm going through? We begin to talk to ourselves and preach to ourselves more than we Listen to ourselves. And as you do that, as you begin to preach to yourself and talk to yourself, expect a response. 
just as we do here. Expect a response. Expect to be compelled by the Holy Spirit to turn in your heart towards repentance. Repentance in the midst of suffering, it may sound counterintuitive, but repentance in the midst of suffering is actually your best friend. As the Holy Spirit begins to drive out your selfishness and your bitterness and whatever is at work as you fix your mind on Jesus and begin talking to yourself and examining and putting your emotions and responses on trial and he begins to work those things out of you and work in you the fruit of his spirit in the midst of those things we'll be compelled to to pray to throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus once again to repent of all the foolishness to repent of that desire to make it all about me to repent of the propensity to make my suffering about me and to get everybody to make their world about me. It, it rips us and it rips us of our love of ourselves and of all the things that we've clung to so tightly and it causes us to pray. And that's what we'll, we'll do right now. And as you pray, as you fix your mind on him and run to him first and his word first, and not yourself. As you pray, you'll find yourself praying things contrary to you ever prayed, the things you've ever prayed before. You'll find yourself not praying all the time for God to just fix your circumstance and remove your problem. But more importantly, you'll find yourself praying for God to change your heart in the midst of your problem. So let's do that this morning. Jesus, we gather here a... Uh, we gather here as a very privileged people. Privileged not only in the material sense, but privileged in the sense that we have your word. We have thousands of years of history of your faithfulness to your people. Lord, help us to know that this world is not our home and help us to reconcile that reality with the fact that it's filled with pain and hardship and difficulty and our minds are broken and our bodies are broken, our expectations are broken, our desires are broken. And Lord, help us to confess, Lord, that we're tired of trying to fix ourselves. Because we're just, frankly, no good at it. Lord, change our hearts. Help the desires of our heart to match your desires. Help our will in the midst of our circumstance and our suffering to match your will. Give us your perspective on our life in this time. We love you, Lord. Amen.